We've been in the middle of a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we were supposed to talk about uh, the next portion of that text this morning, but uh, with everything that took place this week, it just felt that it was appropriate to pause, to step back from that series uh, for a Sunday, and to speak uh, something directly to all of us this morning uh, with regard to our circumstances and our situation. And so um, we're going to just, we're going to step back from that sermon series uh, this morning and uh, and talk about what we do with maybe many of the emotions that we felt this week. Uh, I want to say that it's been a tremendous thing to watch. Uh, the firefighters, law enforcement, the military from Fort Carson, Air Force Academy, and everybody working together to do such an incredible job in rushing into the scene and doing everything that they can. Don't you agree? It's an amazing thing. Um, And I don't know if anybody's here that represents any of those groups, but if you are, maybe a little hand. Okay. Well, if you, if, if you see someone or you know someone, I know last night that you know, people lined the streets as the shift change was happening between the firefighters, and I, that stuff, it just gets me every time because you've got people who are standing there defending homes, protecting our city, flying into the, the smoke, you know, and... Uh, it's a remarkable thing hearing the, the coordinator for the National Guard saying it's a joy to be serving you know, Americans, and I, I think it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But with all of, all of the, the events, you know, the way it kind of escalates so quickly, we were sitting in a staff meeting on Tuesday, and one of our staff members said, I've got to go, there's a fire near my house. It was uh, two days later that he discovered that he had lost his home. And we think about all of the different emotions that... that that well up inside of us, even from a distance, maybe even watching the footage or reading about it. And we wonder, what do we do with this? What do we do with this as Christians? What do we do with this as people of faith? Uh, do, we, do we take these emotions and just kind of say, okay, well, I just, I'll have to just you know, push it down. Uh, maybe, maybe we think that um, as Christians we can't really be sad, that we've got to sort of say, okay, well, you know, that was, that was difficult, but whoo, it's all right, it's all right, you know, Jesus, Jesus is alive, you know, God reigns, and I'm happy today. Is that what we, we need to do, deny them? Or maybe we think, well, maybe we don't deny them, but maybe we just need to move on because I don't like dwelling there. And, and if we're honest, maybe for us even who have been distant from the fires this week, maybe for some of us, if, if, you know, if we're really honest, we might say, but I'm glad to kind of be a little removed from this because I don't like to enter into somebody else's pain. Uh, I don't really want to hear of the stories. I don't really want to know about loss or pain or sorrow because it's uncomfortable and it's, it's not what I want to think about. And so we're all too happy to kind of move on. And I want to say to us this morning that the Bible gives us an extraordinary gift, and that is the, the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms are this extraordinary gift for us as followers of the Lord because it tells us that everything within the range of human experience can be brought before the Lord. That it's not as if God says, okay, here is the spectrum of emotions or here's the range of human experience and I only want to talk to you about your guilt and how you can get to heaven. That's not it. What God wants is he says, look, here is the whole range of human experience. Here is the whole spectrum of emotions and fears and anxieties and all of it. And I want you to know that I am here with you through all of it. And there's nothing that you go through that you cannot come and bring before the Lord. The Psalms are not language school for the experts. You know, sometimes we think, well, praying the Psalms, I mean, that's like, something the monks did, right? I mean, that's kind of for the advanced. That's the 2.0 Christian. I'm 1.0, so I'll just pray what's in my heart. 
No, it turns out that there's this long tradition from going back to the people of Israel all the way into the early Christian days and into the present where the Psalms are specifically designed for all of us, the novices, the ones who when you come to a situation like this week and you say, God, what do I even pray? Do you feel that at all this week? Someone says, let's pray for our city. And you're thinking, I don't even know what to say. I, I, one of you shared on Facebook, said, finally had a good cry about it, you know. And I think, yeah, sometimes that's part of it. But when we're searching for words, when we want to know, what do I say? What do we pray? This is the gift that we've been given in the book of, the, of, book of Psalms. The Psalms are, are given to us to give language to our grief, to give language to our anxieties, to give language to our fears, to be able to say before the living God, this is everything I feel deep down inside. Sometimes you need someone else's language to help you unlock what you're really thinking. Because maybe we're so conditioned to sort of push it down and to to set it aside or to deny it or to move on. And we need the Psalms to kind of say, Oh God, where are you? And then you say, Oh yeah, I, I have thought that. I have wondered that. Psalm 42, I'll read just the first three verses again. We heard it already. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night. Think of that. You know, we often think of the song, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. We sort of think of that as a syrupy, maybe sentimental moment. I think for the psalmist here, it was pure desperation saying, the only thing I've been drinking lately are my tears. Is there something else? Because tears don't actually quench me. Is there something else I can drink that would quench my thirst? While they say to me all day long, where is your God? There's three words I want to say to you this morning. They're all verbs. The first word is this, lament. Lament. Maybe you know this, but two-thirds of the book of Psalms are laments. Roughly two-thirds of them are laments. I was talking to my friend, a psychologist, also a professor here at Fuller. We were talking about this a month or so ago. And he said, Glenn, isn't it interesting that every name designation we have for Psalms, the book of Psalms, is this, this, it's this book of praise? Why is it a book of praise when the majority of them are complaints? Can complaints be praise? And we were talking about how there's something about a complaint when you bring it to the right person that it actually is a form of praise. See, if you bring a lament to a person who can't do anything about it, that's not a lament. That's not, there's nothing praising or glorifying about that because you're just complaining. You're just, that's a vent, which may be healthy for other reasons. But a lament is different. A lament can take on the form of praise because you're going to the highest authority there is. By bringing your complaint before God. That's why the psalmist says, when shall I come and appear before God? When can I talk to God? It's God I want to talk to about my complaint. It's God that I want to bring my heavy heart to. It's God that I want to bring my depression to. It's God that I want to appear before and speak with. And I think when you do that, when you come before God with your complaint, I think that is a way of Him being glorified. That's a way of him saying, you do believe that I care more than anyone cares. You do believe that I am more in control than anyone else's. You do believe that I am sovereign and loving and good, and this is why you've come to me with it. My friend, the psychologist, was also telling me that 
for humans to attach to one another, to other personality, you know, two personalities to attach and to bond. There has to be this freedom to be vulnerable. There has to be this freedom to say, okay, let me bear my soul. Here's what's happening. What chance do we have of intimacy with our Heavenly Father if He says, I only want to hear the good stuff? Don't you come to me with that heaviness. Don't you bring that sorrow. Ah, 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 praise. Turn that frown upside down. (laughs) No, he says, I can handle it. What's on your mind today? What's in your heart today? When shall I appear before God, the psalmist says. And then he goes on and he says, you know what though? There's more to my lament than just me wanting to come and appear before God. The truth is, there's all these people around me and they keep saying, where is your God? Now, the thing about the psalmist saying that other people raise this question is I have to wonder if he's really saying, and sometimes I think this question too. Have you ever been there? Maybe this week. You're thinking, okay, God, like, I mean, we're praying. I mean, I'm like, rebuking winds, like commanding rain, and it took three days? Where is your God? I mean, shouldn't it be this kind of strange thing where like no Christian lost their home, but only wicked people? That would be, you know, maybe there's something in us where we think that if I'm a Christian, surely this shouldn't happen. I mean, it's just, that's just going to make people say, where is your God? And the psalmist says, Hey God, I got a lot of people asking me where you are. And if I'm honest, I'm kind of wondering too. The cycle of lament is not one that follows a linear trajectory. If, you're, if you've read the Psalms, you don't often see this clean movement of, okay, the lament, the lament, and then praise, and then, okay, whoo, we move past that. In fact, if you read Psalm 42, it happens in movements. And so you'll see a a lament, and then you'll see this refrain of saying, put your hope in God. Then he goes back to the lament. Then he goes back to the refrain of, but but put your hope in God. Then he goes back to the lament, and you're thinking, dude, get over it. Except that that's not how we are built, is it? That it's not a matter of saying, okay, I got all that grieving out of me. I got all that lamenting out of me. Now I'm good. Now it's only praise, Lord, only praise. But the truth is, life is such that we visit these things in cycles. And different things, unexpected things will trigger it. I have a dear friend who's a year ago lost his wife in a tragic car accident. He's taught me a lot about what grieving is. We've met together just about every week for the last year. And he's teaching me a lot about the different unexpected triggers that bring about lament. There's no such thing as saying, okay, I'm all done with that. And the psalmist says, this is the wave of it. It comes and then you lead towards this place of hope, and then it comes back, and, and on and on the journey goes. The second verb for us this morning is the verb remember. Remember. The psalmist says in verse 4, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping the festival. What is the psalmist remembering? Remembering worshiping with the people of God. Remembering the congregation. Why? What is it about gathering with the church? You know, I've been, I, I think it's a really fascinating thing to study how we are as human beings. 
that the, the embodied practices, the things we do together with one another, end up forming us and shaping us even more than a list of ideas. And you find yourself sometimes in moments of crisis just going back to these habits and these routines. And for the psalmist, the routines, the rituals, the practices that he's embraced are ones of gathering with the people of God. And so in his moment of despair and in his moment of grief, he's not saying, I remember the three arguments for why God is good. He's not calling to mind this, this, this brilliant, you know, sort of uh, exposi- expository sermon from his pastor but why, why God is still good when bad things happen? No, what he remembers is there was this thing we used to do. We used to gather with the people of God. That's why I think for a lot of us, sometimes in hard times, you know, what the, one of the first things we think of is we think of a song. And you think, I remember the song we used to sing. I remember what my family used to do. I remember how we'd get down on our knees. I remember how we'd open the Bible. I remember, and all of a sudden, you start to remember, this is why we gather as a church every Sunday. You know why we do it? Because it's practices that form us. It puts us in the routine. It, it, it gathers us into this embodied ritual, and it begins to shape us. So even when you move beyond it, even when you're not in it, even when you can't come to church, even when you can't be with your friends, all of a sudden, these habits are so in you that it's formed you that you start to think of it, and you think, I remember when... I remember these things. I remember these things. I remember how we used to go to the house of the Lord. But then skip down with me to verse 6. The end of verse 6, he says, My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you. Therefore I remember you. He starts to all of a sudden say, Okay, okay. I remember being with the people of God, but you know what I remember? I remember the God of the people. (laughs) I remember being with the people of God, but now I'm remembering the God of our people. The God who has been there. And he starts to list these specific names of cities, which to you and I maybe don't mean much. Jordan and, and Hebron. And you're thinking, well, what are these names and what are these cities? Listen, think of it this way. Where are those places and moments in your life when you say, you know what? I remember the God who saved me out of my life of sin when I was a young boy. I remember the God who turned this around. I remember the God who walked through that difficult hour. I remember the God. And all of a sudden, you have your own names of specific places and cities. For me, I can think of, as a 10-year-old boy, when we moved from Malaysia to America, my parents, my dad gave up his high-paying job and worked as a, as a minimum wage janitor making four bucks or something an hour so that he could put he and my mom through Bible school. And I can remember the night that my sister and I said, boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a pizza? (laughs) Which was a luxury for us at the time. And someone knocked on the door and said, hey, we were just moving into the apartment below you and we ordered extra pizza for all the movers. Here's three boxes. Could you use them? And we were like, manna from heaven. (laughs) I remember that. I remember my... I remember my father kneeling down to pray every Saturday morning. I remember waking up when he would blast the latest Hosanna cassette tape and start praying in tongues so that you couldn't even hear Don Moen's voice anymore. So loudly. It was so loud that my sister and I were forced to wake up and join. I remember God walking with us through that. I remember when Holly and I thought we were going to lose our first pregnancy. I remember having to rush to Buffalo General Hospital while I was on a 
tour with the Desperation Band in the middle of a festival and had to leave and run away because we thought we were going to... I remember how God saw us through that. I remember how we did have a miscarriage while we were away on a ministry trip in Asia. I remember how, God, how we had to rush home and cancel vacation plans and come back, spend Thanksgiving by ourselves because we were supposed to be with family, but now we were alone and sad. I remember how friends knocked on the door unexpected and brought a meal. I remember these things. I remember the God of those things. I wonder if it's a practice, a part of your life to write down these things. For the people of Israel, they built these memorial stones. They had these moments that they said, these are sacred places. These are special moments. These were the times when God did this, 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 and this. And so as the psalmist is here in despair, maybe he's even in exile, we don't really know, but he's, re- he's recalling this moment and he's saying, I remember you all the way from Jordan. The, the God who did that, the God who did that. Finally, the last word here is hope. Verse 11 is this refrain that he's been saying throughout the psalm, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him. This is what hope is for the psalmist. The hope for the psalmist is this moment will not be the final moment. This moment will not be the defining moment. He says, I will again praise Him. I'm not sure how to do the praise thing right now, but I will again get there. We're headed there. Put your hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. If you're the circling type, you could circle the word hope, but I would say circle the word in. You know, it's very different to, put your, to have hope in something versus to have hope for something. When you think about disappointments in life, most of the time it's our, our disappointments come in life because we had hope for something, Right? I had hoped for that job. I had hoped for this outcome. I had hoped for that raise. I had hoped for this, this thing or that. I had hoped for. I want to say to you that even faith in the Bible is never faith for, but always faith in. Did you know that? Sometimes you'll hear if you're channel surfing late at night, a faith preacher or something, say, I have faith for Alexis. Or I have faith for your healing and I have faith for this. Do you know Jesus never talked about faith for? But he always talked about having faith in. What's the difference? The difference is a fixation on an outcome versus a confidence in a person. One is just just fixed on an outcome. I have faith for this outcome as if you can somehow you know, use a Vulcan mind meld or Jedi mind trick and just sort of... Yeah, yeah. That's not how faith works. Faith is not a way of controlling the circumstances in your life. Faith is a way of trusting God through all the circumstances in life. So faith and hope are not for things. They are in someone. But then we have to say, okay, well then who? In whom? In whom do we put our hope? Why can the psalmist say hope in God? One of the best emails I got this week was from one of you who had to flee the neighborhood and said, 
Glenn, we said, Jesus, we don't care as much about our home. We care about what you're doing in us. We care about what you're doing in all these people. And I, I, I know maybe that was a moment of strength of being easy to say that, and then maybe the day, next hour or next day was like, oh, crap, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> I do care. I, you know, I, I, I. <laughs> but I think ultimately we have to ask ourselves, what, do you, what, what is strong enough to place hope in? What can you put hope in? Can you place it in a thing? Can you place it in stuff? Can you place it in a house? Can you place it in something that will eventually go? Always hope in God. The psalmist says, why so downcast? Hope in God. Say, Glenn, thank you. That's nice. But what is this God even like? How do I know I can put my hope in Him? It's a picture that represents the scene from our gospel reading this morning. This is by Eugene Delacroix. I don't know. I don't speak French. And I'm not really much of an art person. I told you this. So full disclosure, I googled paintings of Christ in the storm, okay? Just in case you think me, you know, more sophisticated than I really am. Uh, This is called Christ Asleep During the Tempest, and apparently Van Gogh was a real fan of this painting. And you can see, if you look closely kind of up there, Jesus is sleeping and he's got a halo around him, you know. And everybody else is, you know, everything else is dark, and the one light in the picture is coming from his face. Who is this God that we have hope in? You know what's remarkable about this story? I think of a few things. The Old Testament shows an interesting relationship between God and creation. A lot of times you'll see God as being the one behind natural disasters, or at least that's what they seem to think. But when you get to the New Testament, you don't see creation as an instrument of God's work as much as you see creation as something, one more thing that needs to be brought under Jesus' rule. Isn't that interesting? You don't see it as creation as being this instrument of God's sort of work. In the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you see creation as being one more element that is unruly, that is being brought under Jesus' arriving kingdom, Jesus' rule. And so instead of seeing God being the cause of the storm, like you do sometimes in the Old Testament, there's a lot of parallels between this story and Jonah. What you see instead is you see God being in the storm. It's a remarkable change in how people are learning to see God. All of a sudden you get to the Gospels and you get to this story and the sea represents all of this chaos and evil and the forces of dark that are rising up to oppose the Son of God and His mission to cross to the other side. And what you see is not God animating his creation, but God being sovereign over it and confronting the chaos within the world. And you see this Jesus entering into his unruly world. Paul will tell us in Romans 8 that creation itself has been subject to bondage because of our sin, because of our fallenness. Nothing works the way it was designed to work. Whether it's wildfires or gray hairs. Everything around us says, this is, this is not fully right. 
And the question we want to know is, okay, so this God that I'm putting my hope in, where is he? And what is he doing about this? And the gospels say to us, where is he? He's in the boat, in the storm with you. The creator doesn't stand apart from his creation. The creator, through the miracle of the incarnation, joins his creation, becomes one with it. Think about that. The miracle of the incarnation is that God doesn't stand back from our pain and God doesn't stand away from our brokenness. But Jesus himself is not just near the brokenhearted. Jesus becomes the brokenhearted. So that every one of your laments are not just your cries, but his cries. And every one of his cries become not just his cries, but your cries. And that Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is all of a sudden the same cry that the disciples say to him on the boat. The disciples say to Jesus on the boat, don't you care if we perish? Later on the cross, Jesus says, my God, have you forsaken me? And so all of a sudden, the sovereign Savior has also become the suffering Savior. Right there with us. But the story also gives us a little glimpse about what God will do in the end, doesn't it? Jesus stands up and he says, Be still. Cease. Stop. Calm. The book of Revelation gives us a picture. It says, There's no more sea. You're like, what? I was hoping for a beach in the new creation. No, it's a picture. It's a metaphor. It means that no more will forces of evil and chaos reign in the world. In fact, the only sea we see is this glassy one, this calm and peaceful one. Do you know, none of the miracles that Jesus did were party tricks. They weren't magic shows. They weren't power trips. Sometimes we look at the miracles of Jesus and we think, aha, this is now how we can have authority over the world and how we can sort of, you know, zap things. You're missing it. What do the gospel writers call the miracles? Signs. What do signs do? They point. What is Jesus pointing to by this miracle? He's saying there's coming a day where the God who entered into his world, the God who suffered along with his creation, the God who was helplessly thrown around on a boat in a stormy sea, the God who helplessly cried out on a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's coming a day where that God will one day set right everything that is broken and wrong with the world. Church, that is the God we hope in. That is the Jesus we hope in. This morning as we come to the table... The table is a perfect place where remembering and hope come together. Where memory and hope come together. Where we look back to the past, but yet we're proclaiming a hope toward the future. The reason we do this every week, the reason we come to the Lord's table every week is not an empty sort of thing. It's to remind us of what happened on the cross. It's to remind us that the suffering, crucified God came into his world. It's to remind us that God didn't leave Jesus there on the cross or in the grave, but that God raised him up. It's to remind us that there is something coming that is better than what is. It's to remind us that death will not have the last word, that evil will not have the day, that devastation is not the last say. It's to remind us that in the end, God will take everything that is broken and put it back together 
again. And so this is where all of a sudden the remembering and the hoping come together. They come together at the cross and at the table. Let's pray this morning.